This summer, as many of you know, we are teaching through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us how he wants us to live in a few major areas of our lives. And sex and lust is one of those areas. So I'm going to just let you know our topic this morning is sex and lust. If your kid is in here and you don't want your child to hear about sex and lust, now is your time to bring them down to the children's wing. Also, if you are a parent, you have little kids, you have not yet done the sex talk, I think what you're going to learn today is going to set you up for having that discussion. Also, I believe that what Jesus has to say on sex and lust is more needed and more important than ever. And we pick up today where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. The title of the message is Sex and Lust. If you are a teenager sitting with your parent, the subtitle is This is About to Get Awkward. <laughs> Hear the words of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you, it, excuse me, I got to the right hand too fast. Let's, let's just continue to talk about what to do with the, the right eye. Um, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Okay, it, it is easy to read this and think Jesus is a medieval celibate monk who has come to beat sexual desire out of his followers. At first glance, it appears as if Jesus is teaching us, if you have sexual desire for someone who is not your spouse, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, and if you are unwilling to, which I see a whole group of people who seem to be unwilling, if you're unwilling to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand, then your body is going to hell. Many people mistakenly believe Jesus is supporting the repressive view that the Bible holds against any form of sexual desire, sexual pleasure, and sexual intercourse, and nothing could be further from the truth. It is a grave misunderstanding to believe this about the Bible. The Bible begins with God creating woman and man. In Genesis chapter 2, God brings Eve to Adam. Whose idea was it to bring Eve to Adam? They are, they are missing something that you and I would deem to be essential. Does, does anyone want to take a guess at what they were missing that we would deem essential today? And the answer is no, it is not a smartphone. They are missing clothes. 
Woman and man are naked in the presence of God. And the first thing that naked man does in response to naked woman is serenade her with love songs. Dare I say, the biblical, the biblical story of humanity begins with romance engineered and blessed by God. And eventually God interrupts this romantic serenade to give the first commandment. The first commandment that God gives to humanity is be fruitful and multiply, have sex. Then God gives humanity a safety zone, a zone in which sex is best. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his who? Wife, and they shall become one flesh. God creates male and female. God institutes marriage for husband and wife. God gives the commandment, be fruitful and multiply, and then says, do it within the covenant of marriage. And so throughout scripture, there is one relationship in which sex is to be embraced, explored, encouraged, enjoyed, and celebrated. Sex is only for the covenant of marriage. Sex is best in marriage. The Bible begins with love, desire, marriage, and sex, and that's just the beginning. Interesting, no one's dozing off yet. Usually three minutes in, I got at least three of you dozing off, but you're all alert. Here, we'll continue to wake you up. In the book of Proverbs, we find wisdom for husbands and wives. Proverbs 5, verse 19. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Someone once said, sometimes I take the Bible literally. There's one book in the Bible that Jews wait to share with their children until they're teenagers. It is the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. The song is a description of sexual desire, sexual arousal, and sexual pleasure. The first words of Song of Solomon are this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. You can guess where this is heading by where it starts. At Melissa and I have decided that we are waiting until Ben is 25 <laughs> and the girls are in their 30s to introduce them to Song of Songs, amen? But, but here's the point. The Bible doesn't hold a negative view of sex. The Bible celebrates sex within the covenant of marriage. Sexual desire, sexual intercourse, sexual pleasure. Do you know whose idea it was? God's idea. And married people, congratulations. You can take your weekly application points from Genesis, Proverbs 5, and the Song of Solomon, the whole song, and apply what you learned this week. As you've already seen, the biblical teaching on sex is way different than what culture is teaching you. In the Bible, any form of sex outside of marriage is labeled sexual immorality, fornication, and the lust of the flesh. The Greek word to, to cover these many forms of sex with outside of marriage is pornania. From pornania, we get the English word for pornography. The cultural response to sex only for marriage is thought of by most people as repressive, archaic, impractical, and unrealistic. And the reason the biblical view of sex is so different from the cultural view of sex is because 
the biblical view holds has a very high view of sex, while the cultural view of sex is what you and I would call a low view of sex. Culture reduces sex to a mechanical, casual, and physical act, while the Bible teaches that sex is physical, relational, soulful, emotional, and spiritual. And it's interesting, and I, and I love when this happens, when science begins to catch up to the biblical teaching on sex. Biblical writers from the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, understood that sex was created by God with the power to be binding. We already read the scripture passage from Genesis chapter 2, verse, two verses, verse 24, and it says that two shall become one. Sex is binding. Today, scientists have identified what happens to your brain during sex. And by the way, the brain is the most sexual organ. Endorphins, adrenaline, dopamine are released during sex. Physiological, physiologically speaking, these chemicals bind us to whoever we have sex with. It is the glue that binds us to one another. Those who have sex with many are divided among and bound to many. Sex is too powerful to be casual. This is why the Bible says sex is only for marriage because sex is binding. The Catholics include the consummation of marriage in their list of holy sacraments. How many of you were raised Catholic, Roman Catholic? Okay, so you know this, there, there's seven sacraments and the consummation of marriage is part of a holy sacrament. A sacrament is an oath of allegiance through which we receive God's grace. When we talk about oaths of allegiance, legal pacts, we're talking about making a covenant. Sex is part of the ceremony between bride and groom of making a covenant with your spouse. Covenants were cut with the shedding of blood. If you, if you read scripture, there, there, whenever there's a covenant, there's the shedding of blood. It's, it's for, for life. And consummation is the covenant ceremony for husband and wife. And on marriage night during consummation, often there is the shedding of blood, the cutting of the marriage covenant. In marriage, whenever a husband and wife have sex, it is the way we renew our covenant, our bond, our promises, our vows, till death do us part. It's meant to be an outward symbol and seal of what we've done with our lives as husband and wife. Sex is meant to reflect what you've already done with your life. I've given my whole life to love this person naturally. I give my whole body to love this person in a sacred act of sex. Number three, you may find this surprising. Sex is best in marriage. There is a book that came out called Premarital Sex. In the book, they survey people who are having sex inside and outside of marriage. Do you know who, who finds the, the most sex the most satisfying? People who are only having sex within the covenant of marriage. Orgasms are more frequent in marriage. That's what the data tells us. Let me tell you about sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is lacking integrity, potentially devastating, and unloving. Don't call it love. First, it's lacking integrity because you refuse to do with your life what you're doing with your body. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. 
You're trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union that are meant to go with it. Second, it's unloving. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is read at almost every single wedding. Maybe it was read at your wedding. If, if you're not married and you plan on being married one day, it'll probably be read at your future wedding. It is the famous verse about love. And, and here's how it begins. Love is? We'll just try that one more time. And it is the most famous verse. It was probably read at your wedding. Love is? Patient. Love, by definition, is patient. In basically every movie or TV show that you watch, one person says to another, I love you. And then what happens? They go off somewhere to have sex. The I love you in the movie or in the TV show that you're watching is not I love you. What it means is I want to have sex with you right now. It's not love because love is patient. Love never leads someone you truly love into sin. Don't call it love. Third, it's potentially devastating. Sex outside of marriage leads to venereal diseases, abortions, sexual violence, and emotional trauma. But what about two consenting adults who are in a loving relationship, who plan on getting married one day? They move in, they buy a house, they get a pet, they pretend to be married. What could go wrong? Again, don't take the Bible's word for it if you're not a Bible person. Just, just go by the data, okay? Here's what the data says. You cohabitate, you are more likely to divorce than those who wait to move in and have sex only in marriage. One last thing about sex outside of marriage on a societal level. This is from a non-Christian. This man is a social anthropologist. His name is J.D. Unwin. He's, I don't know how he had the patience to do this, but he studied 86 different societies throughout 5,000 years of human history. And this is the discovery that he came up with. After a nation becomes prosperous, bring me to J.D. Unwid. After a nation becomes prosperous, yeah, after a nation becomes prosperous, it becomes increasingly liberal concerning sexual Morality. Got that? that? That's not happening here, is it? There is no instance of a society, sexual fidelity was the single most important predictor of a society's ascendancy. Get that again. Not technological advances, not a strong military. Sexual fidelity was the single most important predictor of a society's ascendancy. After a nation becomes prosperous, it becomes increasingly liberal concerning sexual morality. There is no instance of a society retaining its energy which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continence. When it comes to sex, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't even have to start with scripture, but at least listen to what sociologists, neurologists, anthropologists, and psychiatrists are learning about sex. Sex is only for marriage. Sex is best in marriage. Okay. Deep breath. You ready to move to lust? Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. We, we, even in, in our culture, we, most of us, almost all of us agree with that, right? Don't, don't hop into bed with, with someone else's spouse. 
Don't, don't blow up a marriage. Don't blow up a family. We, most of us agree with that. Jesus is quoting from Exodus 20:14. It's the seventh commandment. And Jesus, by the way, also agrees with it. And verse 28, he says, but let me, let's go a little bit deeper. Let, let's get to what, what's behind the commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her or him in his heart. Jesus goes beyond the physical act of adultery to the root of adultery in all forms of sexual sin. And that is lust. That is the spiritual drug of lust. And it's important to know what lust is and what lust isn't, right? We need, we need to have a healthy definition, understanding of, of lust. Lust is not looking at a man or a woman and finding them attractive, not lust. My brother-in-law has lost a lot of weight. He'll, he'll tell you all about it if you talk to him. He, he is, he's working out, and when I see my brother-in-law, I see him as handsome and as an attractive young man, and I say, what's up, handsome? It is not lust. I am simply stating a fact. As a pastor, one sacred moment that, that we get to experience is to stand at the altar with the groom when his bride enters into the sanctuary and he sees her for the very first time. Every bride is beautiful. And I, I know yours is the most beautiful, but, but every bride is beautiful. Every bride is radiant. Every bride is, is, is walking in her glory. It's not lustful to acknowledge that. It's not even lustful to say that. It's sacred. Finding someone beautiful or attractive is not lust. It's normal. It might even be a signal that you're, you're, you're living, that your mind is working. Further, sometimes we look and find someone attractive and there is a flash of sexual desire. It's not something that you stirred up. It is something that happened to you. And it happens in the blink of an eye. And you have no intention of acting on your desire. You don't know the person's name. You love your spouse. Uh, you love your relationship with the Lord. You're walking in the fear of the Lord. It's not a sin when that happens. It is a temptation. While I was preparing this sermon, I was cutting and pasting scripture verses from a Bible website so that I didn't just have to type them up. Clickbait flashed on the, the bottom of the Bible website. It was an attractive woman in a bathing suit staring right at me longingly. <laughs> and, and just for the record, and you know, if you're planning on marriage or if you're married, like you all know, you, we all know this. You never go bikini shopping for your wife, right? You, you don't do it. So there, there is no reason, like, there's no interest in, in bikinis except for the bikinis that I, that my wife purchases for her and when they're on her. So this thing comes up. I didn't ask for it. I wasn't looking for it. And there's temptation to take a second look, a third look, a fourth look look, to click, to swipe, to stare, to take a ride down lust lane. I clicked, don't want to see this ad again inappropriate. I made a decision too. Time to start using my real Bible. The real Bible is the one made of paper. <laughs> Martin Luther 
the Protestant reformer of the 16th century, does a good job of describing the difference between a normal look and a lustful look. Here's what Luther says. I can't keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or biting off my nose. This is John Mark Commer's definition from Bridgetown Church. Lust is looking intently, tracing her body or his body in your mind's eye to fuel sexual desire and sexual gratification. And Jesus says when it comes to lust, do the opposite of what society encourage us, encourages us to do. Society will tell us lust is natural. Lust is unavoidable. Lust is no big deal. It's just a look. It's just an app. It's just an image. It's just a video. It's just a text. It's just a picture. It's just porn. Jesus says it's adultery in your heart. It makes you guilty of adultery in your heart. And what you take into your eyes has the power to corrupt your entire body. And here's what to do in a culture that provides a never-ending stream of lust. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Cut it off, gouge it out, amputate yourself. And Jesus is not a prude. Jesus is wise. Jesus understands where lust leads, and you and I have experienced, know, understand where lust leads. Lust leads to pornography addictions. Lust leads to sexual violence. Lust leads to affairs, divorces, and broken families. Men, the number one cause of erectile dysfunction, and by the way, it's among younger men, not older men, is pornography. That's lust. Lust leads to pedophilia, human trafficking, 35 million victims every single day of sex trafficking. Excuse me. It all begins with lust. Jesus knows where lust leads. And Jesus says lust leads to hell. Lust leads to hell on earth. Lust promises heaven and delivers hell. Gouge out your eye, cut off your arm, do whatever it takes to avoid lust. Lust will steal your sanity. Lust will shame your soul. Lust will capture your heart. Lust will kill your relationships. Lust will divide your family. Lust will leave you ashamed. Lust will kill love. Lust will kill you. And that's why Jesus is so extreme. It's not that he's trying to come down hard on us because Jesus is, is, is cruel or, or a disciplinarian or, 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 or unloving. He knows what lust is and he knows what lust, love, what lust does to us. And Jesus really loves us. Jesus really wants to heal us. Jesus really wants to see you free and to save you and to heal you. That's his heart and that's his plan. And that's why he takes this stance against lust. And so let's conclude by talking about gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands. Everybody ready? Let's talk about what this is and what this isn't. If we took it literally, everyone would have, everyone be blind here today, right? We'll just say it that way. It's not meant to be literal. It's meant to be practical and logical. And Jesus says, start where lust starts. Where does lust start? 
It starts in the eyes. Gouge out your eyes. Delete the app. Gouge out your eyes. Turn off the show. Gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. Don't be alone with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your fiance. Gouge out your kid's eyes. Don't give them an unmonitored smartphone. Wherever there is temptation, wherever there's an open door, gouge it out, cut it off, amputate it. It'll cost you something to love yourself. It'll cost you something to love your children well. It'll hurt to be free. You'll have to sacrifice some things to be healthy and holy and loving. And I'm going to tell you this right now. You're worth it. Your life is worth it. Your family is worth it. Your whole body, your soul is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Heaven is worth it. So we're going to close here. This is a, a true story about a man named Harry Flanagan. Like many of us men, he started using pornography as a young boy. He kept the secret of his addiction throughout his entire life. He vowed to himself over and over again, I'll stop. But he could never stop on his own. He loved God. He really loved God, but he couldn't kick the habit. Lust led to more lust. Lust leads to more lust. And Harry had three affairs. He began to experience the slow death of his marriage and the slow death of intimacy with his children. He was trapped. And the day that he was taking his son to college, it's the day that his son is going to start college, he's having a phone conversation with one of his mistresses. And his son overhears the conversation. The son courageously goes to his mother and tells Harry's, Harry's wife what was happening. Harry's wife divorced him, sold the home, and she and the kids moved to another community where they felt safe. Harry was 34 years old, excuse me, 43 years old, unemployed, living with his mom and dad, filled with shame and despondency. Harry was broken. He called his mentor. His mentor was a pastor. Harry finally confessed his sin. He cried. And his pastor had some startling things to share with Harry. He said, first, Harry, you are in a hellish place right now, but you haven't been in such a good place in a very long time. He told Harry, three days prior, I was praying for you, and in prayer, God put me, God put you on my heart. I started praying for you, and I felt like the Lord told me that you were going to call me in three days, that the Lord was planning to expose you, and that... He would, that he would call me. It took three days for Harry to call, but in that moment, Harry realized that God was already working on his restoration even before Harry was. God still loved him. God still valued him. God still desired to use him. And today, through God's help, Harry is free. Harry is a pastor, and God has used Harry to help thousands of Christians get free from lust. There's no difference between the numbers of church people and non-church people when it comes to sexual immorality. There's none. You talk about affairs, you talk about a divorce, you talk about pedophilia, all the stuff, the numbers are the same according to the Barham group. So we can say, yeah, 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 yeah. It's really easy for us to say the society out there is struggling with lust. But the truth is the society out there is struggling with lust and the church in here is struggling with lust. And what you need to know is that in our shame and in our pain, God is already making a way for our restoration. That God has not given up on us, that God still desires to heal us and to heal our families. 
And my hope today is that this would be a start for your, toward your journey to freedom in real life. If you're willing to run from hell and toward heaven, it'll take three things. First, God will do it, but God won't do it without you. It's going to cost you something. You have to be willing to do the work. Are you willing to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand? Second, Harry Flanagan says that he, as the years, the decades that he's been doing this work, he has never seen one person healed of this alone. You can't do it alone. You need people to help you. And third, let us help you. We will do whatever it takes to help you. We'll pray together. We'll fast together. We'll confess our sins together. We'll, we'll make calls. We'll go to meetings together, whatever it takes. You are worth it. Jesus came to forgive us and to free us. Jesus has already made the way and Jesus is the way. Will you pray with me? So you're, uh, we come in here today, as Pastor Liz said uh, during her call to worship, that we came in here today with different things. And you might be struggling with sexual lust today. You might be struggling with lust for, for alcohol, lust for food, lust for, for, for money, lust for success, lust for whatever it is. But it's holding you captive. It's keeping you from being free. It's an attachment. And so I just want you to take a moment, whatever that is, and, and just nothing's... Nothing's worse than, than anything else, okay? We're in the same boat. We're just coming before the Lord together. But bring it to God. And maybe you can just say to God, I'll do whatever it takes. Lead me. Maybe you can just say to the Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. And, and just ask him for the next steps. And, and you might say it's not a big problem, but there's a root and, and there's a weed growing up in your life and it's not good. So whatever it takes, Lord, Whatever it takes, we're all in with Jesus. We thank you that you don't give up on any one of us, that you love us, that you call us, and that your plan is to make us holy and blameless before you, that you give us the power, God, through the Holy Spirit, the power that rose Christ from the grave to overcome sin, that we're not bound to sin. We can be overcomers of sin and death. And so every attack of the enemy, we rebuke in Jesus' name, and we claim the freedom, and we praise you for the freedom that you have died to give us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we thank you for our design and our destiny, and we thank you for the power to follow you today in all the days of our lives. So we say, Lord, whatever it takes, you're worth it. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen and amen.